Good morning. Welcome. Good morning. Welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds for March 19, 2014, and our continuing uh, Pediatric Gastroenterology Chad Mini Fellowship Series. Um, so our colleagues uh, throughout the region are joining us by VTEL, welcome. Uh, the Chad Mini Fellowship Series, as a reminder, continues to be uh, focused, practical, relevant updates in uh, key concepts in pediatric care from our local experts, so we'll continue that this morning. Next week, we'll continue our graduating residence uh, grad, grand round series with Dr. Samantha House, who's gonna talk about medication, measuring medication, a look at variation in pres pediatric prescribing. Uh, announcement reminder, as you may, head over to the clinic on the fifth floor between Reuben and uh, the clinic building, Faulkner. You see a series of stations set up. That's for us to do our biometric screening as part of uh, Live Well and Work Well, so helping us live, live better lives and, and live healthier. If we complete the biometric screening, there's a little bit of a token incentive of $100 as well. Um, and then there's other opportunities to gain another $100, $200 by being more active. So try and complete your biometric screening. I want to read a good, I always get, like to read some good, uh, good vibes. This was a letter that was addressed to Dr. Weinstein, but is really for all of us uh, that came unsolicited from a, from a student who doesn't identify her age. But a few weeks ago, my mom and I watched the video that your hospital made of Roar by Katy Perry. I'm writing to compliment you. It was very inspiring. He didn't compliment him on his dancing. But I appreciate all of the work that you and your staff have put into your job. It is amazing that these kids have so much courage considering what they're going through right now. We all think we have so much going on and we have problems, but we should be thankful for what we have. There's a boy at my church who had cancer for a while. He's cleared right now, but it was very difficult. He made it through because of his care, but also because of the support of his family and doctors and friends. Thank you for doing your job well. It is hard to find kind and caring people who love their job. Although it might, be, might not be obvious right now, we appreciate how hard you're working. So I think that's a great message for, for all of us uh, from uh, an Emma Pike from Greenland, New Hampshire. Uh, today we're really pleased to continue this fellowship series. As I said, Dr. Mark Hoffley is joining us. He is based in uh, our Chad Manchester division. Uh, Mark is a graduate of uh, Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, a native uh, of Canada. We've had a nice stretch of those. Actually, last week was a Canadian speaker as well. Uh, had training in pediatrics at uh, two of the finest children's hospitals in the world, at the Hospital for Sick Kids for general pediatrics and then completed critical care fellowship training at uh, Children's Hospital Philadelphia, uh, has found his way actually into uh, gastroenterology and more specifically uh, co-leads our efforts in um, lipid and weight management as the uh, more the lipid guru, but also does obesity and weight management with uh, Odd McClure, who's here in the office today. So it's, 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 very, it's very pleasing to welcome Mark up from Manchester, not too far. Well, thank you for having me today. And um, the talk, um, it's going to be about uh, lipids yeah, specifically. And um, I apologize for anyone who was at the pediatric conference a couple of weeks ago in that Washington. It was gorgeous. Uh, so it's a similar, it's the same talk, a few extra slides. Uh, but please interrupt with any questions. Um, this will not go the full time. Um, so the objectives, uh, whoops, wrong button. There we go. So we're just going to review the new guidelines for cholesterol screening that came out about two years ago, um, which are a little different than in the past. Uh, initiating uh, initial therapy in the general pediatric office which is mostly lifestyle modification. And then a little bit about uh, medication, uh, what a journalist should know uh, with uh, some of these medications that we might be prescribing. Um, and if we have time, I have a couple little case uh, cases to go over. Uh, no disclosures. We're not doing any uh, medication studies yet in our clinic, but hopefully in the future we will. So why do we want to screen? Um, 
And really, we're looking for genetic causes of uh, hypercholesterolemia that can be inherited and uh, cause issues. Uh, we're looking for acquired uh, dyslipidemias um, that is now becoming probably the most common uh, problem that we see in our clinic. And really, we do this to prevent premature cardiovascular disease. Um, so to go over some of these things. So the inherited hyperlipidemia, there's a whole bunch. Uh, uh, um, the Fredrickson uh, phenotype criteria, it's very cumbersome. Uh, but uh, there's a couple uh, that just to highlight. Um, we have the familial hypercholesterolemia. Um, and that is uh, probably the most common one that we see um, in terms of elevated uh, pure cholesterol only uh, in healthy young kids. Uh, we have a familial combined hyperlipidemia uh, with this, you know, a prevalence of about 2% of the population. So people will see this when they screen. <laughs> and then uh, the other one is familial hypertriglyceridemia uh, with a prevalence of probably 1%, maybe a little more, depending on the study you read. Uh, so again, you will see these uh, in your clinic. So the acquired uh, causes, are, they're quite lengthy. Uh, we see it in diabetes. We see it from some drug medications. Um, we see it in hypothyroidism. Uh, but uh, probably the most prevalent now is metabolic syndrome or obesity. Um, and then the other one is just to remember anabolic steroids, especially in the teens. Uh, we're seeing some of that. So atherosclerosis, um, why, it, uh, you know, why are we trying to prevent premature uh, cardiovascular disease? Well, basically it started with um, some studies back in the 70s. Uh, the uh, Bogalusa heart study was done, which looked at just autopsies of people, uh, young people who, uh, pass away for different reasons. And they just uh, looked at arteries, uh, mostly coronary arteries and the aorta. And they did find streaks, fatty streaks developing uh, in these kids uh, and young adults uh, that progressed to plaques. Um, and they were able to correlate that there were worsening these, uh, you know, plaque streaks um, depending on some factors. Age was probably the biggest factor, but blood pressure cholesterol levels that were done, uh, and uh, body mass index as well. Um, another study uh, uh, done as uh, can kind of concurred with this. This was a younger population, 15 to 19, and they saw, again, fatty streaks, some lipid-filled macrophages, uh, and um, this was quite common, about 10%. Again, these were kids not known to have any heart issues, just random uh, 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 kids who passed away for random reasons. Uh, but uh, we, they saw 10% streaks in the coronary arteries, and 30% uh, of aortas had uh, some changes. So basically, atherosclerosis is definitely a um, um, a uh, natural process that occurs in all humans. Um, and um, age, of course, is the most common, uh, the most uh, uh, factor that, that's most correlated. As we live longer, we see this. So what we're trying to do is prevent premature uh, development of these or acceleration of these plaques uh, and inflammation that tends to lead to um, sudden uh, blockage or rupture of these plaques. And again, all correlated uh, with uh, known issues like smoking, hypertension, obesity, hyperglycemia. Uh, as well, there's a, in uh, ch uh, young children, adolescents who are known to have familial <laughs> hypercholesterolemia. So their LDLs are usually in the 200s or so. Uh, they have done some studies. Uh, they see abnormal level of uh, coronary calcium. Uh, they have uh, carotid uh, intima media thickness uh, that's increased compared to uh, norm. And they've done some studies looking at impaired endothelial function, which is what tends to happen in older people and uh, rupture of uh, plaques. This is just a 
little slide that demonstrates kind of the progression from fatty uh, vasosclerosis in, uh, 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 in coronary arteries or in the carotid arteries, uh, basically, uh, usually at junctions, bifurcation of arteries, um, where there's a little bit more turbulent flow, but you have fatty streaks. And then it progresses to more um, uh, atheromas. But then if there is inflammation uh, that is happening, uh, that can accelerate and you can have a sudden rupture uh, of these plaques causing a blockage and a sudden event such as a coronary uh, a myocardial infarct or a stroke. So that's what we're trying to prevent. Um, so just talking about familial hypercholesterolemia, uh, they found that untreated uh, disease will occur 20 times more often in these children, uh, in these adults, uh, young adults. Um, men will have disease in their 40s uh, and women in their 50s. Uh, so, and as I said, it, this happens in everyone. It's a natural aging process, but if uh, you are healthy with no risk factors, don't smoke, don't have high blood pressure, and you're not obese, you, might, you shouldn't have any problems until your 70s, 80s for men and women, uh, even rare. So this is you know, almost double or half the span that we're trying to prevent. Uh, metabolic syndrome, we're seeing this more and more. Um, it, there's not many studies in children yet, long-term, but definitely in adults. Uh, adults who have this uh, syndrome uh, have th two to three times uh, more uh, strokes or heart attacks five times more likely to develop type 2 diabetes, uh, two-fold uh, increase uh, in fatal cardiovascular disease, coronary vascular disease, or, and uh, non-fatal in women. So it's, it's definitely uh, serious uh, when you have this uh, as an adult, and we just assume that if you have this as a child, uh, you're going to have these statistics or worse. We've all seen these slides from the CDC in 1990. Uh, BMI is above uh, the 25th percentile, uh, or yeah, above the 25th percentile, which uh, is in the red, uh, kind of orangey, uh, meaning over, overweight and above the 30th, uh, was extremely rare. Uh, and then it progressed uh, a little bit that we were seeing now more states in, uh, in 2000, 10 years later, that had BMIs uh, above 20 to 24, uh, really advancing. And then 2010, we just saw an explosion of uh, overweight uh, and uh, BMIs above uh, uh, 30 in so many states uh, compared to before. These slides are very similar. This is adult data, but the slides for children are, look basically identical. It's followed uh, suit. So definition, just to quickly go over in pediatrics, uh, we can't use just a solid BMI number. We have to use percentiles. So uh, overweight is BMI above 85th percentile uh, for age and sex, obesity above the 95th percentile. And now we're using a term uh, for either severe obesity or morbid obesity, which is over the 99th percentile. The reason for this, oh, yes. Quick question, what's the standard for that? And does that change with time? Yes, no, not yet. Okay. These are all still based on um, the original growth charts in the 70s, I think they were done, and we have not adjusted them yet. And a lot of people think we should, and a lot of people think we shouldn't, uh, because, uh, you know, historically, um, as you can see from the previous slides, you know, in the 1990s, we didn't see too many uh, obese people. Um, so the 99th percentile, why is that important to look for? Well, in our clinic and in uh, other obesity clinics, um, we seem to see a, a quite more uh, morbidity. Um, uh, we see laboratory changes uh, much more dramatically when, uh, when we hit this uh, 99th percentile. Just like all disease in children, children have amazing compensating mechanisms, but then when those are pushed to the limit, they kind of crash. So it, it, this seems to be something we see in obesity that uh, 
they do extremely well with probably no abnormalities in their labs uh, through being overweight <laughs> and even mildly obese. But then once they get severe obesity, they seem to have issues. You've all seen charts like this now with the computer. Uh, it, it kind of starts all clump at the top. Uh, EDH only has a BMI, I think, up to the 36 percentile, uh, or a uh, number of 36. So it's very hard to uh, judge if it's getting worse or better. Um, so just some statistics in New Hampshire. The latest I could find was 2010. Um, but at that time, our population was about 1.3 million. Um, population of 18 uh, and over was seven, about 78%. So under 18, about 22%. Uh, current obesity rates at that time in 2010 uh, in low-income uh, children, 2 to 5, was 15%. So this is BMI above, thir uh, above the 95th percentile. Third graders, it was going up to 18%, high school around 12%, adults at that time about 25%. Um, adolescents, um, overweight uh, but not obese, about 13%, obese 12.4%. So that's roughly 12,000 adolescents in 2010 in this state alone who uh, are, are obese. So it's a large burden. Risk factors from, again, statistics of 2010, uh, we all kind of see this. Inadequate physical activity uh, in all children, 71% uh, though in adolescent, young kids under 17. High school students, 53% were inactive. Um, excessive television viewing as probably one of the reasons they're not active. Uh, after school, less after school programs, double income family, uh, two, you know, two working parents, kids come home from school alone with nothing else to do. They don't, they're not, some of them aren't allowed outside until a parent's home, so they watch TV and probably eat. Uh, inadequate fruit and vegetable consumption, you can see it's very high. Complications of obesity, we know a lot of them, it's very, there's a lot. We're not going to talk about that. But dyslipidemia is uh, neurological as well. Uh, there's new studies showing that there might even be some cognitive impairment uh, in obesity. So let's talk a little bit of familial hypercholesterolemia. So this is one of the ones uh, we used to see uh, uh, probably 50% of our clinic in lipids uh, uh, used to be this, but now it's less than 20% just uh, in terms of uh, what we see in our clinic. So these are, uh, uh, we're talking about mostly the heterozygote, so it's a, uh, it's a uh, genetic inherited defect of the uh, LDL receptor. Um, there's um, a number of uh, other genetic defects uh, that involve this, uh, uh, the metabolism of LDL, uh, uh, low-density uh, low lipoprotein. The receptor itself has over 1,600 known mutations, so it's almost impossible, uh, other than research, to uh, look at the exact cause. But the prevalence is about 1 in 300 to 500 in the entire country. But in our, in our state, because of the French-Canadian descent, uh, it's probably higher, much higher. In, in, in uh, Quebec, it's up to one in a hundred. Uh, so it's very common. Uh, you'll see this. In terms of, um, let's, uh, where are we? So familial combined hyperlipidemia, another one, as I said, prevalence is one to two percent. So you're going to see this. Um, and they uh, estimate in adults that it's uh, about 10% of cases of coronary uh, artery disease, uh, premature uh, disease. Um, generally, the lipid profile you'll see is high triglycerides, high LDL, um, sometimes, and often it's both. So that's where it comes in. It's slightly different genetics, um, and it's a, it, it, there's several different genetics uh, involved in that. In familiar hypertriglyceridemia, again, prevalence about 1%. Tends to be autosomal dominant inheritance, uh, so not quite as common. Um, and uh, that is basically a lipoprotease lipase uh, problem. 
the triglycerides are usually moderately elevated, 200 to 500. Um, often have low HDL, so it can, can, uh, can be uh, seen in insulin resistance uh, a lot. Metabolic syndrome, this is probably the second most, or the most common problem we're now seeing in our clinic. Uh, in pediatrics, there's no clear definition. Um, I use the International Diabetic Federation. A de suggested definition hasn't been endorsed in the states, but it's a good start. Um, basically, you have to have abdominal obesity. Unlike adult uh, definition in the states, you do not have to have abdominal obesity. but. Uh, in pediatrics, it just felt that if you don't have it, there's no point uh, calling this metabolic syndrome. We don't want to call children under 10 with metabolic syndrome, but they are at risk um, if they have an uh, abdominal circumference above the 90th percentile. So all children uh, um, who, um, before you think of metabolic syndrome, really need to look at the abdominal circumference. Uh, from 10 to 16, there's this definition where you have abdominal obesity above the 90th percentile. I have a reference for those uh, values. There's been studies done for that. Uh, you try, and then you have to have two or more of the other criteria. So L, uh, triglycerides above 150, same as an adult. HDL less than 40, same as an adult. Either systolic or diastolic hypertension. We didn't go by percentile in this definition. And then uh, some evidence of glucose impairment, uh, either prediabetes or, uh, or diabetes. Uh, so in the European definition, they just use uh, fasting glucose. But um, I, I've started using the A1C as well uh, as part of that. Above 16, you can use the adult definition. Again, this is a European definition, uh, not the American definition that's stated there. Uh, this is the, um, in, 2005, in 2000, sorry, 2004, there was a study that looked at uh, waist circumference, uh, which is what I use uh, for um, my clinic in terms of references, and they divided up between um, European-Americans, Mexican-Americans, and combined, and African-Americans and combined, um, and above the 90th percentile. So I, we do measure waist circumference in uh, our clinic. Sometimes it's obvious and we don't bother. Uh, the pathophysiology of metabolic syndrome is unclear. It's still being uh, studied. Uh, but it definitely seems to be uh, an issue with overeating of sugars um, and as, as well with a high-fat diet. Um, fructose seems to be a, a major issue uh, in uh, developing of this. Uh, we metabolize. Uh, Fructose mostly in the liver, and uh, that seems to lead to problems um, uh, with uh, developing of fatty liver and metabolic syndrome. Uh, glucose um, uh, is actually, you know, directed direct, uh, to the muscle uh, from it when you ingest it more. So uh, while fructose seems to go straight to the liver to be metabolized, and that leads the liver to produce more triglycerides, which seems to lead to increased visceral fat, so the abdominal obesity that we measure uh, uh, to assess this. You have this visceral obesity seems to be um, very active metabolically, uh, inflammatory. Uh, lots of uh, different studies showing inf uh, increased cytokines, tumor, necro uh, tumor necrosis factor. And that seems in some way to lead to insulin resistance. So metabolic syndrome is most likely just a, uh, it's an insulin resistant uh, issue. Um, risk factors, obviously genetics, there seems to be a very uh, big prevalence uh, in families, uh, ethnicity as well. Uh, sedentary lifestyle is a major factor. Diet, of course, as we said, high, sh high sugar or high carbohydrate consumption <coughs> Um, some medications that we see with some of the mood disorders in children uh, have um, seem to cause rapid abdominal visceral uh, fat. Age, of course, and um, in uh, adults, excessive alcohol use, but uh, we're seeing that maybe in adolescents. So we've all seen pictures of children who we may think have metabolic syndrome. So you see the this. Uh, 
preschooler with still seems to have a lot of baby fat. We see this often. Uh, the abdominal uh, girth is expanding over uh, the pants in a young girl. This, uh, the progression we've seen in kids. Kids used to mostly look like the one on the, the left there, and now we're seeing more and more on the opposite side. One nice feature to look for uh, when you're doing a physical is uh, acanthosis nigricans, uh, which is a darkening, thicker um, uh, skin development, which is a sign of insulin resistance. Uh, so you see it behind the neck developing. Uh, so it's kind of, a, it has a velvety uh, look to it. Uh, but in children, I find uh, the axilla can be a more sensitive spot to look for. So I always look there, especially in darker skinned individuals or in the summer, it might be hard looking at the neck. Uh, but the axilla tends to be, uh, I think, a sensitive place. Uh, so back to lipids. Uh, the screening. So prior to about two, uh, 2011 or so, the recommendation was just to screen if there were risk factors or uh, uh, in the family uh, or if the child had risk factors. Now uh, we recommend universal screening of all children regardless of uh, family history or risk factors for the child at around age 10, so 9 to 11. Uh, and then again, once they've gone through puberty, uh, around 17 to 21. Um, you don't have to do a fasting lipid uh, profile, so you can do a non-fasting. Uh, and the reason for this was mostly to catch the genetic hi uh, familial hypercholesterolemia issues uh, where you don't really look at the triglycerides. Um, however, uh, if, you have, if you have an obese child, um, <clears throat> you may want to do a fasting because you need the triglyceride levels uh, uh, to make assessment. Unfortunately, familial hypercholesterolemia children are just as prone to obesity now as uh, any of the population, so we're seeing uh, a kind of a mixed picture in these children. But you can, if you have a family who you're not sure they're going to come back or have, uh, you know, um, Getting fasting labs might be difficult. You can definitely do labs right away at your office visit and measure that. And then, of course, if there is very strong family history of coronary artery disease, risk factors, then or a family member has any of these genetic issues, then you screen at two or above. And so that's been endorsed by the American Academy of Pediatrics, the American Heart Association, and the National Lipid Association. Lipid panel, um, basically uh, total cholesterol uh, greater than 200 is felt to be high. Um, LDL above 130 is felt to be high. Uh, HDL less than really 40 for uh, men, 45 for women. Uh, so less than that is would be considered too low. And triglycerides, anything above 150, is felt to be elevated. So familial hypercholesterolemia, we tend to see uh, LDL levels above 160. Uh, you, when you do a non-fasting uh, lipid profile, uh, you can do the non-HDL calculation, which is just total cholesterol minus um, the uh, HDL, and uh, that is a measure of all atherosclerotic particles, um, and that's about 30 points above uh, LDL level. So if it's above one, you usually see above 190. So with those numbers, you suspect uh, familial hypercholesterolemia. Above 20-year-old, uh, it's LDL above 190, or uh, non-HDL cholesterol above 220. So non-HDL just at the bottom there is usually about 30 points higher. And more and more reports now from labs are giving you that number, the non-HDL. So it's just calculation again, uh, total cholesterol minus HDL. Uh, so that's useful in the non-fasting uh, lipid panel. Um, if, it, if you do have a, a non-HDL that's above 145, so you're talking about an LDL above 115, then they do recommend a fasting lipid profile to confirm. 
So dyslipidemia in obesity, what do we tend to see? Um, and this is probably from insulin resistance is we have an elevated triglyceride level uh, that's not too severe, uh, but uh, definitely abnormal. Low HDL, less than 40 in general, and the LDL uh, is moderately elevated. <clears throat> Metabolic syndrome is very similar, obviously, it's obesity, but, uh, but usually uh, we always see a triglyceride in children. I, I, I almost never not see a triglyceride level that's not elevated, and an HDL that's always low, below 40. So why is it important to screen this early? Well, we, there's good research, uh, many studies, but this is one of the first ones that really showed that uh, it's much easier to treat obesity uh, in childhood than in adolescence or in adulthood. So the earlier we pick this up, uh, the easier in general or more success we may have in reversing this. Again, uh, in f uh, familial hypercholesterolemia, you can have a degree of uh, being overweight and obese. So again, that just an increased risk factor for these children. So they've already have a 20-fold increased risk of heart disease, as I mentioned earlier. So if you add any other problems like uh, obesity, it just accelerates even more. So again, it's important to screen early and find it and help the families make adjustments for lifestyle at a young age. So prevention is obviously the most important thing that we can do. Um, and again, why? Uh, well, once easier to prevent than to treat, especially once you get past adolescence. Uh, but also, uh, there's some studies here from uh, Corin in 2001 that showed that um, um, the persistence of, a, of obesity just seems to, uh, uh, if you're an, uh, an obese pediatric patient, you're going to be an obese adult. And then in uh, a study that's quite old, 1992, it was found that the morbidity and mortality does not disappear even if you get you treat these uh, adolescents. So if you're an overweight or obese adolescent and they lose weight, they still seem to have all the risk factors uh, or the uh, uh, potential for morbidity that they would have had even if they didn't lose the weight. So there seems to be some metabolic changes that are kind of permanent. So again, prevention is so important. First, of course, is therapeutic lifestyle intervention. So that involves talking about nutrition, eating habits, and activity level. This is just, if people like SHU, uh, it's a very typical of our patients. So um, in terms of uh, nutrition diet, what we tend to do, again, because of studies with especially metabolic syndrome, that seems to show uh, that this is an insulin resistant type disease, uh, it's an excess ingestion of sh sugars. Um, we tend to counsel people to get back to a normal level of carbohydrates, which is about 50 or less percent of your total calories. Uh, most of our children that we see in our clinic, their carbohydrate consumption is closer to 60, 65%. So this typical diet that you might hear is, you know, bagel for breakfast or Pop-Tart for breakfast, very little protein, just carbs, little fat maybe. Lunch tends to be, uh, you know, pizza, uh, chips, french fries, uh, and dinner tends to be a lot of fast food, takeout, um, not much home-cooked meals. A lot of kids, again, they come home by themselves and they just microwave something when they're hungry. What do they microwave? Mac and cheese or things like that. So very high consumption of carbohydrates of all types. So we try to educate them to limit this. And how do we do that? Well, mostly we start with the choose my plate. Everyone's familiar now with the choose my plate, uh, which takes over from the food pyramid that didn't really work, was confusing. This is much more visual, a little simpler. 
still amazing uh, how many parents don't know this. Schools are teaching it, uh, but the kids, uh, the, the information isn't coming uh, to the families. Um, we, uh, um, we talk about vegetables, fruits, the use of whole grains. The reason for whole grains is increasing fiber. Fiber, a high fiber diet seems to help lower cholesterol. Um, low dairy fat, even though there's more and more studies showing that skim milk may not be the right advice, uh, that uh, fat, it doesn't stimulate insulin. And so uh, skim milk might be more like a juice. Uh, so I, I tend to recommend 1% or 2%. <clears throat> And you need protein. A lot of these kids have very little protein in, at breakfast and lunch sometimes. And so uh, advising them to add protein uh, specifically will help. Uh, depending on how that's going, we up the education. We talk about how to uh, nutrition label reading for some of these families and teenagers. Uh, portion size, uh, we talk about uh, more in detail. Uh, and uh, you know, a simple thing that we do initially is uh, carb. Your whole carb uh, portion shouldn't be more than the size of your fist. So that's the size of, uh, you know, let's say the spaghetti serving cooked or cooked uh, rice, uh, all to you know, breads, everything all together, no more than about your the size of your fist of the child. Uh, and then sometimes we do carb counting, a little different than in, uh, in the diabetes. We're not teaching them to uh, count carbs to measure, you know, to know how much insulin to give them, but really it's to limit their uh, portions of, carbo of carbohydrates to try to keep um, the portion less than 50%. So I use this, again, this is from the Choose My Plate um, website. It just kind of gives you a good start as to how many calories a child, depending on age and activity level, uh, they need. Uh, and then you basically just uh, divide that in two to get your carbohydrate calories, and then divide that by four to get how many grams, and then basically break that into uh, three meals and uh, three snacks. So it tends to often be around 45-15, or 50-15, after all that calculation. Uh, we also look for other factors, depression, being bullied, or illiteracy in the family. Um, and then we talk about exercise. And um, a lot of these kids are very sedentary. What's the definition of sedentary? Less than 30 minutes of physical activity a day. So that is very common in our kids. They're watching you know, or playing video games in excess of four hours a day. Um, so we want them to, you know, the long-term goal is probably an hour. It's very hard to get that for a lot of kids, and they get discouraged. So we start slow, start with maybe 10 minutes and work up. Start light, especially if they're morbidly obese and deconditioned, and um, move up. And what we want them to do is, you know, moderate, eventually to be moderate to vigorous. So that means they're a little, you know, it's not just walking. It's a good start, but they have to start pushing themselves. So they need to be a little short of breath. Uh, they need to be a little sweaty, a little red in the face. So we talk about the intensity as well. We don't do this all at the first visit, obviously. Smoking, cessation, especially for the adolescent, very, very important, as we know that that increases inflammatory inflammation in the arteries and will accelerate atherosclerosis. So we offer smoking cessation if they are. We go over misconceptions. It's amazing the number of misconceptions. I have some families that get all caught up with, you know, should we switch to oats or should we go organic or should we only be fresh? And, you, you know, a lot of these uh, misconceptions uh, discourage people from even trying if they have limited income, thinking that they should only buy fresh fruit and fresh vegetables. Uh, they tend to just not bother. So we talk about frozen vegetables, frozen fruit, even canned is fine, just washing, you know, rinsing them well. Challenges, of course, the adolescent, they really are often not motivated. They're just not invested in uh, changing. Uh, so we have to go very slowly. For them, the future, talking about 
potential future diseases, you know, and, and at the age of 30 or 40 for them is a long way away. So uh, uh, I, I, that often never works. So we try to look for incentives, you know, maybe the, getting into a prom dress or uh, getting into sport or, you know, uh, something. We look for something. And uh, depression is often a very big factor, and uh, we do treat if we see it. Um, familial influences, of course, a lot of parents have, uh, you know, kids learn from their parents. They have horrible eating habits. They're very uh, uh, sedentary themselves. Genetic factors. First treatment. What's our time? Okay. Oh, so first treatment, usually uh, we start for uh, when we have uh, elevated LDL. Of course, it's lifestyle, as we said, uh, in terms of nutrition, diet. Um, for the familial, I forgot to mention, for the familial hypercholesterolemia, we talk about the saturated fats, uh, just trying to keep those lower. Uh, however, you know, our body, 80% of cholesterol is made by our body. So nutrition won't have a huge effect when your LDL is above 200. Uh, and or um, so um, we do talk about that, but it's mostly lifestyle, just eating well, keeping your BMI normal for these kids, um, and for the metabolic syndrome, of course, trying to any changes will help. Um, if we do want to treat, so if your LDL is you know definitely above 130, despite nutritional changes, lifestyle changes, um, we start plants. Phytosterol. So those are in products now. Uh, we see them in margarine spreads. Um, some cereals, kashi cereal, adds them to it. I think Hood made a milk at one time with it. I'm not sure. There's chewables, but these basically just fool. We absorb these plant phytosterols or stanols or uh, sterols that we see on the label. And it fools our body. So we f absorb those instead of uh, animal cholesterol uh, or cholesterol that we've made that recycles as bile and reabsorbed in our uh, lower intestine. And that can drop our LDL by about 10 to 15%. So it's a significant um, uh, drop. And it has no known side effects. But it has to be used as a medication. That's the biggest problem. A lot of parents, because it's not prescribed, uh, it's hard for them to do this consistently. Um, and some kids just don't like the products. But you need to take about 1,000 milligrams twice a day. Some families do it, and they, it, it works very well. Uh, in terms of other medications uh, for metabolic syndrome, insulin resistance, um, we uh, may uh, use metformin. and. Uh, a lot of psychiatrists are now starting to use metformin when they start some of these psych uh, psychiatric drug drugs. Um, it seems to suppress production of glucose by the liver. Uh, it increases insulin sensitivity in the periphery. Uh, it enhances peripheral glucose uptake. Um, and um, it itself has some effect on LDL levels, not major, but it does seem to help a little bit. Uh, and it's not associated with weight gain. So it's a nice medication, and we use it, uh, we're using it, unfortunately, more and more in children. Um, it's felt to be quite safe. It's very low risk of hypoglycemia. Uh, so we don't really monitor that uh, in general. Lactic acidosis, you all hear about it, but it's extremely rare. Um, the most common problem when we started, though, is stomach aches, nausea. Uh, a little bit of diarrhea. Uh, so we start very low dose and work up very slowly. Uh, and uh, so it usually takes me a couple of months to get them to full dose. And that seems to, they seem to tolerate that speed. Um, and um, we only advise uh, to not use cimetidine uh, because that increases the level, blood level of metformin. Um, and long-term use, uh, we check vitamin B12. It's been uh, we see low, possible low vitamin B12 levels. And then we tell parents to hold it in a child who has a diarrheal vomiting illness where there may be some dehydration. So that's metformin. Statins, um, FDA approved above eight. There's not that many 
not that many clinical trials, but definitely um, in the short term, there doesn't seem to be any long-term side effects. Um, we consider it, uh, again, uh, it's not, these are just, there's no hard rules, but if your LDL is above 190 persistently, despite having, you know, changes in lifestyle, uh, lifestyle modification, um, then we consider it at that stage. I get a lot of kids below that number with plant stanols, and parents seem to like that. Um, if you, if there's a, a lot of risk factors, though, the child themselves or the family, you get a family who dad had an MI at 45, or mom had one in their, in, you know, or a stroke at a young age, then the criteria drops down to 160. So again, genetics plays a huge role. There are some families I see with familial hypercholesterolemia, there's not one family member who's had heart disease or stroke. So there's obviously other factors that are protective. So those kids probably have those protective factors. So, you know, you can wait, you know, if it's, uh, there's time. Uh, but once we treat, we try to get the LDL below 130. And the way we explain it to families is, again, it, this is age is a risk factor. Is if you have, you know, let's say the average person is born with an LDL of 100, and you have that over 80 years, well, you'll have so much plaque formation, atherosclerosis. If you are born with an LDL of above 200, well, you get the same level of plaque formation roughly in half the time. So that's how I explain it to families as to why we may want to start these medications at a young age. Because by the age, let's say I see this kid at the age of 13, he's already had 13 years of markedly elevated LDL. Very different than an adult who doesn't have familial hypercholesterolemia but has an LDL, let's say, of 145 or 160, but it's only been like that since their 30s or something like that. So again, these kids were born this way, and the time, the clock started much younger. Um, complications, what are, we see uh, side effects, myopathy, basically myalgia. That's, in adults, they complain a lot about muscle aches, muscle pains, rarely muscle weakness. In kids, I just have not seen this, knock on wood, I don't see this in children. I don't know if they just don't. I don't know, not adults who complain about things. Uh, it's hard to say. Uh, but, uh, um, uh, and it, it doesn't seem to be specific to, it's all satins. Uh, changing satins can help. So uh, you may have myalgia with one and less with another one. Uh, so it, it, you can definitely change. Just, uh, if you have these side effects, it doesn't mean that you can't use any of the statins. Um, rhabdomyolysis is always severe muscle pain, muscle weakness. <clears throat> Often the urine gets dark color. Uh, that, you have to stop the satin right away, rehydrate uh, to clear the kidneys. Uh, death is extremely rare. Uh, the FDA came out uh, not too long ago with a little bit of changes in monitoring. We don't have to worry about liver enzymes anymore. So I always get a baseline just to know. Um, uh, but I don't monitor it afterwards. Um, I also get a baseline CK level. Again, just to know, I have some athletes, and uh, uh, if I start them on a statin and uh, they start having more muscle aches, muscle uh, pain, I like to know what their baseline CK was because athletes often have elevated CK level after strenuous activity. So if I have a person who's a marathon runner or you know runs uh, a lot or things like that, um, but you don't have to keep an eye on it long term. Uh, cognitive uh, issues, well, there's been some stu uh, studies that show that uh, people on satin, uh, and it can happen at any time uh, within uh, early uh, use of satin or late, it can happen years after you've been on it, that they start having some memory loss issues or forgetfulness or word finding problems. Um, and it's reversible as soon as you stop the satin. Uh, but there doesn't seem to be any learning problems. It's more just um, memory. Um, and it's very random. There's no way of predicting it. Uh, uh, so I just warn parents, you know, about that. 
Um, and then there seems to be a slight increased risk of increased blood sugar levels or development of type 2 diabetes. It's not sure what it is. It may be about 1%. They're still looking at this. Uh, again, um, you have to weigh the pros and cons. Um, but, uh, you know, if you have a, you know, if I have an adolescent who is 400 pounds, uh, who has NASH and uh, has uh, LDLs of nine, 190, um, they're not, yeah, I'm not going to worry about developing, they're going to get type 2 diabetes, we don't do anything anyway, so I don't worry too much about it. In terms of other medication interaction, though, this is important, there, there's a huge list of meds that interact with statins, but the main ones that you might see for as a pediatrician is antibiotics, so uh, erythromycin, clarithromycin, azithromycin will increase the level of statin in the blood uh, acutely and may cause some problems, and uh, antifungals like fluconazole. Um, people who were at the uh, meeting uh, uh, two weeks ago at uh, Mount Washington heard a little bit about hepatitis C. There's going to be a push in the near future for people to start screening for this more. In, uh, and uh, because of much better treatment that's now available for hep C, uh, you're going to see maybe some young adolescents on protease inhibitors. And that can interfere with um, statins quite a bit. That can increase the level and cause muscle problems. So again, because obesity is, and metabolic syndrome is so prevalent, there's probably going to be adolescents or young adults who have, who may need both. So be very careful with that. Be aware of that. Don't rely solely on the medical record, uh, electronic medical record to look for med errors or med interactions. It's not always that good. Uh, and the same with HIV patients. We do have pediatric patients who are on these medications and, you know, they may develop uh, issues where they may need a statin. So there are a couple of statins that are contraindicated completely in these uh, patients. Uh, so uh, any questions at the moment? Mark, I wonder if you could uh, describe what you talked about in terms of measurement of uh, uh, Centripetal or waist uh, circumference? Yes. How do you do that? So, uh, yeah, um, there, are, there is a standard way uh, to do it. Basically, um, it's, uh, you measure with a tape measure perpendicular right at the uh, superiliac crest. Uh, you have the patient take a deep breath, and then you let them relax, exhale, and that's your measurement. So you always try to do it standard at the same place. Um, it, it can be challenging, uh, you know, especially for me. I'm not a big person, so wrapping. I need help sometimes for someone to hold the tape measure around some of these kids, you know, who have waist circumference of 45 inches. It's hard to get around, but that's the standard. Uh, a lot of times, I just it's obvious. You don't have to do it, but some kids, um, especially uh, young, I think the guys who start weightlifting, and they sometimes. Uh, gain weight and they get discouraged. Uh, and I explained to them that, you know, you're probably losing fat, gaining muscle. And so uh, measuring your waist circumference is a good way of knowing if that weight gain is appropriate. Uh, so it helps some of these younger kids. Or, and I have, some, you know, girls who start dancing or, you know, they really get into whatever sport and they do increase their muscle mass leg-wise or whatever. And they get a little discouraged initially when they don't seem to lose any weight or gain a little weight, but then their waist is getting slimmer. We talk about clothes size in these kids, you know, but, you know, a good goal is not to go up on your pants size come fall when you, when the parents go shopping, you know, school, back to school shopping. Uh, pants size should not be going up. If it is, we're not doing the right thing. Um, so, yeah. Okay. Mark, thank you for the excellent talk. Can you comment on the controversy of universal lipid screening that the AAP came out with for the 9 to 11-year-olds? Because as you know, there was a lot of pro and con editorials in the AAP or in the pediatrics. And in fact, the US Preventative Services Task Force doesn't even recommend for or against screening in young adults without risk factors. Right. So can you comment on that? Yeah, uh, because it, the, the recommendation from uh, that I talked about was really for familial hypercholesterolemia. So it's a push to look for this. It's under-recognized, 
and a lot of kids uh, are being missed. Uh, so the universal screening was not specifically for uh, issues with obesity, metabolic syndrome, but it was really for uh, a push to look at familial hypercholesterolemia, to find it early and to treat it early. So that was the main reason for that screening guideline recommendation, and it's still endorsed by the National Lipid and Heart Association. So again, it, it's, it's, they're guidelines. It's not an absolute. So, but I think if family doctors, pediatricians are a little bit more aware of it, they'll ask fam, you know, questions, family history. Uh, there's still a lot of kids who I see their first lipid profiles at age 15, and yet mom's been on statin since the age of, tw of 20 because she has had hypercholesterolemia and her grandmother had it and so forth. So there's still a lot of delay in diagnosis. And so again, it's more, you may not treat it with a statin at a young, young age, but you're gonna try to get these families to make sure these kids are active physically, eating well, right from the get-go. My question was along the same lines as Kathy, because I think that um, uh, the, my, sort of just my uh, gestalt of why a lot of those things were happening is because people weren't necessarily doing other appropriate screening questions or whatever. You know, a lot of times when I take a history, many, many, I don't know about the other primary care people, but many parents both can tell me what their cholesterol is. Like the number, they can tell me the numbers. Which is excellent. And so, um, so in those those kids, I feel like I, I can't be missing it. I mean, they're telling me numbers. Um, and then in the other group, when you, I wondered when you were mentioning that there's this group that has, that does have familial um, hyperlipidemia and um, yet no one has had any events, no early. Yes. So in those kids, then maybe they have these protective factors and then it doesn't matter in those kids too. So I'm still having real, a lot of trouble convincing myself right. when I've done a good job. Now, if they don't know, they're like, oh, I was adopted or whatever, great. That's, that is a kid who should be screened. But when I, I feel like when I have a good history, I have a hard time, and, and I'm already pushing diet, I'm already pushing exercise. So I, I'm having trouble convincing myself to screen those kids. Yeah, I think you have to use your judgment. You, you know, every practice is different. Every physician practice is different. Um, some, um, I think, are um, don't do a great screening history, family history. Many adults that I see, you know, in our clinic uh, uh, have no clue what, the, they say, oh, I'm on a statin, but I have no idea what my cholesterol numbers are. So there's, you know, I'll, I but don't. It's, I mean, it doesn't matter, it's high. So that, that kid, what, what happens then? Yeah, but still, it's just amazing how um, a lot of adults have no clue. Or they say, I'm on a med, but I don't know what. So, um, Time, I think, is uh, is a factor in a lot of practices. You don't have time to go through all this all the time. Definitely, I think the electronic medical record is helping because of more modules, family history modules, that at least over time you can build it and it's there and it's quick to assess. Uh, but um, I think um, if in doubt, just I would do it. Just a quick question. How many kids are you seeing with elevated HbA1c? A1c's. Yeah. Uh, well, in my clinic? Yeah. Okay, so in my clinic, right now we've had over, oh gosh, I've seen over 700 patients in our clinic with obesity. So, and 99% of them have a BMI above 99th percentile. Um, I don't have direct numbers, but my goodness, an A1C above 5.6, very common. Above, so above, well, diabetes definition above 6.5, so 6.6. Uh, that rare, much rare, but still, it's you know we we do have them. Um, often it's uh, those kids will go see endocrinology first, and then endocrinology will refer to us to help with the cholesterol, the NASH. These kids have lip fatty liver, and um, they have a lot of other issues. Uh, so it's not type two diabetes. Unfortunately, it's, it's not just an endocrine disease. But I would, I don't know what percent, but I would say we have, yeah, I would say at least 30%. I would say like 20, for pre-diabetes probably. 20, 30%? I've got the numbers. Again, this is skewed. 
exactly. Yeah, this is a skew. This is our clinic, and I only see patients really with a BMI above 95. So this is just a tip. Um, but again, kids seem to compensate for long, long times. So the RA1C won't be elevated for a long, long time. But once it starts elevating, we do tend to see, unless they change, a rapid progression. And the studies show that in endocrinology. Type 2 diabetics in kids rapidly progress to need insulin. Especially in puberty. Yeah. Thank you very much.